Well, I mean, as it, at as much weight as I was carrying, it didn't. I carried, yeah, I carried over. My pack was over 50 pounds most of the time. And that was even going into town. So, like, the amount of weight I was carrying was substantially more, which it didn't really make a difference because we were going slower anyway. So it wasn't like we were going to go faster because Emerson's legs, he's fast for a kid, but he's only got so much. He's a kid, so his legs are shorter. Yes, I was slower overall. Yes, I'll be faster on the Appalachian Trail. But for what I was doing, the extra weight didn't, didn't make all that much difference. Welcome to the Hiking Through Podcast. I'm Erin Egan, and this is the podcast where I talk to experienced through hikers about their adventures on the trail and strategies for successfully completing a through hike. Today's guest is Mama Lion, known off trail as Olivia Miller Baki. She tackled the Pacific Crest Trail in 2016 with her nine-year-old son, Boone. When we first met, her indulging of my ever so many questions about food and packs and clothes and all of the things that are the crazy, incredible experience of through hiking helped inspire this podcast. If you see them on the AT this summer, definitely say hi. You can find us at hiking-through.com through spelled T-H-R-U, of course, where you can find show notes, photos, and links for any gear mentioned in this podcast. You can also listen to us on Apple Podcasts and all the other podcast places. Enjoy my conversation with Mama Lion. Hello, Erin. Hey, Olivia. How's it going? It's going really good. I've had a good day. Let's see. I am also have my notes with some technical details in case it comes up. Even better. I love it. You know <laughs> I how I love the details. Need, if, 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 we don't, if we don't have what we need, I can get you the information after, after we talk. Okay. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> and I know that for this, because this is kind of going out to a wider audience, we're going to end up rehashing some things that we, we have already talked about. But Cool. Needless to say, that's probably not a bad thing for me personally, because then I can reference it really easily. <laughs> yes. Are you excited? Because you only have what, like next year, right? Next year. Yeah. It was kind of funny when, when 2019 rolled around, all of a sudden it was like, I have 15 months, which doesn't sound like very much time to get this all together. Right. Well, it will be fine. It will be fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I planned, I think I had, I had from October until March, the end of March. Okay. And that was from like, yes, I'm going until we left. So my plan, my planning was basically getting the gear into my backpack. And then even if you have all your gear, I feel like if you haven't done an extended hike previously, there's a lot of tweaking that goes on. And so my yeah. thought as I was thinking about this call was like being patient with yourself as you start, because that tweaking is going to happen while you're walking. So instead of being intimidated by people who whiz past you at 25 miles a day, even if you're physically capable of it, being patient with, you know, maybe 
maybe you have to do less miles, but you're tweaking what your method is, what your how you get into camp, how you leave camp, what your rhythm is during the day. Right. And what your gear is. Even if you have my point is even if you have the wrong things or what you don't need in your pack, you know, like there there are stores and mail order all along. So Thank God. Uh, the, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that was my that was my first experience. Yeah. Well I remember when we were talking initially and just to kind of we sort of just jumped into it. So to get everybody up to speed, you hiked the Pacific Crest Trail in 2016. 2016. And it wasn't just you hiking the trail. It was you and your son. Right. And he was how old at that point? Emerson was nine years old when okay. we when we left. Yep. So it was you and Emerson. Yep. And Emerson. Yep. Just the two of us. And I, I guess I'm gonna I'm gonna jump backwards and then I'll jump back to kind of where we we just were. But what what pushed you to hike it and to hike it with Emerson and and how did you get Emerson on board to do that and take him out of school and and all of that? Uh, right. So what in what inspired me? Uh, to, well, I had read Bill Bryson's book, A Walk in the Woods, before my son was born long, long time ago. And so I had wanted to do a through hike for a long time. And I was in a not great work situation. And my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, he suggested that I just leave my job and go and do something that would be more gratifying. And I told him, you know, like, all I really want to do is go and hike. And he said, well, why don't you go and do that? And so I looked at my finances and it seems like I would have enough to finish the trail and a little bit of runway when I got back. Okay. And so I talked to my son and I said, Hey, you know, we have this opportunity to do this thing, but I, I need you to understand what it's going to be like. It's going to be like backpacking. He'd been backpacking with me. He'd done Wonderland twice by that time. So Wonderland is 93 miles around Mount Rainier. So he is familiar with backpacking and longer backpacking trips. And I explained to him, that it would be six months of backpacking every day. And I said, you know, we may not have another opportunity to do something like this. And I need you to be either on board or off board because I have to turn in, uh, like I have to give up the apartment and give them notice. And, and at that point, I had already done a lot of preparation. But at that point, I said, you know, go ahead and sleep on it. And in the morning, let me know if you want to do this or not, because I'm not, I can't drag you the whole way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so in the morning he said, you know, what? he said, you know, I, I have a lot of nerves about going, but if we don't go, I know I'm going to be really sad about it. So I knew at that point that it was all go and I took him at his word. And uh, so, yeah. Which is saying nine. quite a bit <laughs> at, uh, across the board. Yeah. So that, that's another thing. Like uh, I have, I've had a lot of adventures with my son starting with how he was born and, and. And people sometimes ask me, would I suggest, you know, would I suggest that another parent do this with their child? And I always decline that kind of questioning because, you know, like, I don't know that the specific child or the relationship, mm-hmm. the parent-child relationship. And I had a lot of confidence in our case that both of us had the determination to make the decisions that we needed to make to do, do, what, do what we needed to do. And, um, 
yeah, I just trusted that that was the right decision for, for Emerson and I at that point. Right. How did you, because you would have been taking him out of school as well. Right. How did that work? Yeah. So I was nervous about that. I, I contacted the state of Oregon and he was in the third grade and uh, there's state, state mandated testing at third grade and fifth grade. So he kind of fell in this window where he had been tested and wouldn't be tested again until fifth grade. Okay. And so I contacted the the person that oversees homeschooling and I said, how, how do I pull my son out? This is what I'm doing. I was very transparent and honest about what we were doing. I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go do this thing. I'm going to do my best to keep up with reading and mathematics and writing when we can. And then I plan on putting it back in school. And the guy that oversaw the homeschool program, he's like, look, in the state of Oregon, you just have to certify you have to promise that you're doing it Mm -hmm. and then if he shows up in fifth grade and he doesn't pass the test you're responsible so (laughs) that was what they told me and that's what they told me in 2015 when I called so I had a little piece of paper that said you know like Emerson is registered in the state of Oregon as homeschooled and I carried that with me so we left it at his spring break so and I told the principal and his teacher what we were doing we left at spring break and hiked all the way through until October 3rd. And I think he was back in school October 13th. Of wow. Okay. So he missed, he missed some school on either side. Mm-hmm. So that's how, that's how school works. <laughs> and then you were home homeschooling him essentially on the trail as you guys were going. So we worked on reading mm-hmm. and I encouraged him to write. We wrote postcards and we wrote in trail journals. And then I encouraged him to talk with the hikers that we were meeting. And one of the things that any hiker will find is just asking people their stories or what they're into on the trail. There's just so many amazing people that are into so many interesting things. And there's so many really deep and rich conversations. So Emerson would trot behind whoever we were hiking with and pepper them with questions until they would get tired of him. I had more than one occasion he was sent back to find me because somebody was just like, I'm, I'm, I'm tired. <laughs> like you've asked, you've asked so many questions. Right. He met uh, all kinds of environmental uh, workers, people who were interested in energy efficient architecture and building. We met people who manage fish and fish and wildlife. People of all different people who were experts in cheese and one guy who was really interested in being a clown. Like there's just really? so many interesting people. And like how often does a kid get the undivided attention of a grown up who's excited about something? True. And Emerson had lots of those opportunities. So I didn't feel like he missed out a lot on like being educated. He may have not gotten the specifics of certain subjects. Mm-hmm. But as far as an overall life education, I felt like this adventure was more valuable to him in particular at that point in his life. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, how often do you get an opportunity to sort of check in with multiple different people about what they've done or what they do and why they're excited about it? And right, just incredible. Right. Has that influenced sort of his interest after the trail? 
Right. Yes. He's really, he's really interested in taking care of the environment and yeah, a lot of, a lot of his interests go toward our, the health of our environment. He's really concerned about the changing climate Mm -hmm. and he's also really concerned with people friendly buildings and environmentally friendly buildings. And he's also very concerned with people who don't have a choice to live inside a house and how do we how do we connect with our houseless neighbors and how do we kind of bring community together? So I think that it broadened his worldview to a people-centric view mm-hmm. and seeing his community around him and the individuals rather than a particular like um, organization. Right. No, I, I totally, I totally get it. I totally see it. Uh, what was yeah. your guys' trail names out there? So I got dubbed Mama Lion. Okay. Uh, in California, where there were mountain mountain lions, and I had my little cub with me. And uh, Emerson was called Daniel Boone, and most people just shortened it to Boone. So he was Boone <laughs> all up and down. Yeah, nice. So he wore a little a little canvas hat with a raccoon tail, which I think is a Davy Crockett thing. But yeah. a lady on trail was like, "You look like Daniel Boone," and it just stuck like blue. <laughs> It'll work. Yeah. It will work. Yep. Okay. So, sorry, circling back to you guys on the trail and preparing for the trail, when we had talked last time, you had said, you had made this comment about that, that really stuck with me and, and sort of was the impetus in a lot of ways for this podcast, really, because you had said, people will tell you what you should and shouldn't carry, and they, they'll tell you you know, how to carry it and so forth. But you should carry what you need to carry and you'll let it go when you're ready. And that's, right. that's okay. Right. I really believe that. Did I tell you about carrying like, I think I carried like five pounds of books until uh, VVR. You probably mentioned it, but but please tell that the no, story. I, I- I, I really felt like I needed this um, guidebook I was carrying. And there was, I think there were two guidebooks I was carrying and I did read them, but I got into this year and I staggered out of Kennedy Meadows with my <laughs> food load. Cause I had, so it's th- about three pounds a day for Emerson and I in food. And I had more than 10 days. I think I had like 12 or 14 days worth of food. So that was, Oh, wow. That, so over 30 pounds, probably closer to 40 pounds in addition to our regular year. Mm-hmm. And so that was some of that was split up between us. But Emerson can't carry he, as a child. He can't. Yeah. So most of that was on me. So I was carrying a majority of the load. I don't know how much I was carrying, but I still had my books. I went out of Kennedy Meadows and I still needed my books. I got almost to VBR and I realized that I no longer needed to carry them. And I just, and it was, it was a really interesting transformation because I was just, I remember exactly where it was at and I was walking along this Creek and I was, I'm not happy right now. And I was, I asked myself the question, what can you let go of? And I was like, I just, I can let go of those books. And like, it was before that moment, that wasn't, that wasn't something that I could do. But then I was able to lay it down, and uh, now I can laugh about it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Were people telling you before that, that you didn't need the books to leave the books behind and so forth? Oh, yeah. People have a lot of opinions. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> people, have a, people have a lot of opinions. And particularly, I found that people had a lot of opinions for me and a lot of opinions for Emerson. And probably you having taken yeah. Emerson out there and so forth and so on. It's a huge, yeah, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a huge weight and responsibility to be responsible for the care and survival of a child mm-hmm. on an endurance activity like this. And people did have opinions. And I think that that was a really, that was a really, it was hard and also a really learning point for me to really trust uh, advisors that were practical rather than fear mongering, giving me right. practical practical uh illustrations of the risks and possible solutions right what what kind of risks did you actually realistically find on the trail what you know safety safety issues and things like that uh rain (laughs) rain is really dangerous i'm i'm so serious rain is was probably my biggest concern because you're exercising at such a high like so much exertion if you get wet when you stop you instantly have to get dry and warm because your body just the your body's still trying to cool your body so you can hypercool okay and that can be just really dangerous if it's raining it can be really hard to stop and take a break unless you can get dry because you get so cold so that was one. Let's see what else. River crossings were tenuous. We went into the Sierras pretty early. We followed Ned, Ned Tibbetts and his team were a couple of days in front of us that year. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty early. I yeah. think that if I hadn't known that Ned was in front of us and that he felt confident going in and, and even his team had trouble that year. So we actually... um it was we went in before the snow started the major majority of the melt, and we came out at Kirsarish Pass, and I got a satellite message. Somebody tracked me down. Had somebody had sent a satellite satellite message out and tracked me down on Facebook, a friend of a friend, mm-hmm. and said, "Hey, you know, like just to let you know, the major melt has started. Suggest you guys hold up for a few days." and I went and talked to the ranger and we did take that advice and we, t- we took off for a week and waited for the melt to, to move through because of the river crossing. Right. And I was going to say like for the river crossings, did you guys do it on your own or did you wait for other people to come along so that you guys were doing it in a larger group? So most of them we just did on our own. There were a couple that I did that I did wait for, or I was already hiking with. I had a couple of people hiking with me at different points throughout the Sierras. Emerson was a novelty, so <laughs> hikers kind of would slow up. Some people would speed up because it was a liability, but some people mm-hmm. were like curious and interested, so they'd slow down and hike with us for a while. So there were a couple of crossings that I was concerned about. One was Evolution Creek. And it turned out just to just be, it wasn't swift. It was just really deep when we went through and we went the alternative. There's an alternative way that is before the main crossing. And we went the alternative and it was just deep. It wasn't that swift, but down where the regular crossing was, it was gnarly. 
So I was glad we had taken the alternative option. Mm-hmm. And then let's see, Bear Creek is notorious and I was worried about it. It was dangerous and it was late at night and I didn't want to start the morning with a river crossing. So we went on our own and it was gnarly and we made it through. We went a little bit downstream and found a better crossing. But when I was in the middle of it, I thought that it wasn't a great idea for us to be there. Mm -hmm. And then the worst one was Carrot Creek. And Carrot Creek is north of Tuolumne. And that one was that one I actually waited overnight to have somebody spot me. And uh, even then, I was pretty nervous. It was just really it was it was up to Emerson's chest and like above my waist. Wow. So that was and it was swift. So that was that was gnarly. But pretty much we just we just rolled on our own and we did the crossings together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he would hold he would go behind me and and hold on to on. He would hold on to me. So I was dependent upon him keeping good grip on me. Right. Did you guys have trekking poles and things like that with you? And Yep. Okay. Which would help you stabilize. Yeah, I started out so, you know, I don't, I don't know, like Emerson may have carried his trekking poles into the water, but I think we may have stowed them on some mm-hmm. of the more yeah. gnarly crossings. Which because he needed to hold on to yeah. me. Yeah. But I would have my trekking poles. I actually started without trekking poles and then picked some up when I got to uh, hiker hiker heaven uh, Elrod Donasafli's place mm-hmm. at Agua Dulce. Yeah. I've heard about it. And there were a pair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tell her I said hi. Will do. They have really awesome hiker boxes there. And I felt like, so I knew that Terry Anderson's place is just a little bit up the way. So I was, I'm going to try some he- trekking poles and if it doesn't work out, I'll drop them in the hiker box. In the next stop. Yeah. I'll just at the next stop, I'll just drop them off. And I ended up carrying them the whole way. <laughs> <laughs> nice find. Yes. It was a great find. Yes. The trail will provide what you need. <laughs> what is that? The ask and it shall provide, shall be provided. Oh, the, 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 the trail will provide what you need. Just in stop period. Yeah. <laughs> I I think that one of the biggest things was like trust you you learn to trust the journey and you get to a certain point and you're like, okay, I have no idea what I'm gonna do next or I don't have the resources to solve this problem and then all of a sudden you have precisely what you need. You know, whether that's trekking poles or one time I had run out of food and we literally didn't have enough calories to get through the morning. This and was I up knew in Washington, that we could probably right? That was up in Washington. And yeah, and I think I told you the story where, where we literally didn't have enough food. We like I had eaten crumbs and Emerson had had a meager breakfast. And Mm -hmm. I thought we could get to where we were going and in, but we were hungry. And there was a pro bar on the trail with nobody in sight. We hadn't seen anybody. (laughs) So I carried it for like another three miles. And we got to a ridge and I asked around if anybody had dropped it. Nobody had. And I was like, okay, it's, it's gone. It's ours. It's ours. (laughs) Now, why? I I don't remember the full story. Like, what what happened in terms of the the running out of the food or the the getting down to the bare bare bones? I think I just miscalculated. Okay. 
you were on the trail longer than you were expecting? I think, I think what happened. So in Washington, I think I decided to skip Trout Lake and just hike all the way through. And it just took a bit longer than I had expected. Got it. Okay. I think that's, I think that's where I was at. I don't remember exactly how it was just a really long stretch and it was hard to predict with the kid. It was kind of hard to predict how much he was going to eat. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really ration my, one of, one of the things that was really important to me is to make sure that the Emerson stayed healthy and I didn't yeah. want him to lose weight or have his growth impaired because he didn't have enough to eat. But right. That was really not, an okay thing for me. So I really made sure we had enough food. So that was the one time. And I think that I just got a, a little bit distracted in Washington and focused and um, maybe he ate more. I don't know, mm-hmm. but we came down to the wire. Yeah. And the pro bar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how many miles did you start with versus how many miles were you hiking when you got to, by the time you got to Washington? So we were doing about 10 to 15 before we got to Kennedy Meadows. And then in the Sierras, it was about 10 miles a day. It took forever to get through the Sierra. But then once we got to like Oregon and Washington, we were steady at about, you know, like 20 or more. Okay. Yeah, we we really upped our mileage considerably. And it, it got to be this routine. Emerson would be like... So mama, how, how many miles are we going today? And I'd be like 20 miles. And then he'd wake up the next morning. How many miles are we going? <laughs> like 20. <laughs> if we could get 20, that was great. If we still had any go left in us, we'd do more. I was dogged. It would be eight o'clock and I would be like one more mile, one more mile. <laughs> so, so yeah, it wouldn't, and it wasn't, it was a lot by, by Washington. We had everything pretty well oiled and pretty determined. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. What would like? What was your kind of your daily routine? When what, kind of what time would you get up in the morning? And what was your what was your routine during the day and for food? And so we would get up in the morning, and I would make some coffee, and then I'd make breakfast and wake Emerson up. And then, as soon as I could clear the cobwebs from my brain, I'd start putting things away. And then I would get out of the tent, and Emerson would keep putting things away in the tent. Then we would get on the trail. It depended on it just depended on the day. It was so erratic because like hiking with a child, sometimes you have their support and sometimes you have to tie their shoes. So right. it was really variable in like how much he was willing or able to do for himself and how much I was having to like parent him. So mm-hmm. then we would just we would hike and we would just hike all day and we would stop briefly for food and water. Uh, but unlike other hikers who tell me about like taking hour long lunch breaks or naps, we just didn't do that. We just kept hiking until we couldn't hike anymore. And then we stopped. And usually it was dark. It was getting dark. About three or four in the afternoon, I would project where we could be. It was really important that we not be on the side of the hill with three miles of like hillside. Mm-hmm. when Emerson would get tired. So I would start planning that out pretty well in advance and have some idea of where we might be able to camp by looking at maps or looking at half mile and seeing where the campsites might be or looking at contour maps, even to see where flat areas might be in order to 
to camp and also like measuring out my knowing I knew how much water I needed to dry camp comfortably so I would start planning that out in the afternoon to make sure I needed about four liters of water two two liters for me and two liters for Emerson to comfortably get started in the morning so that would be like dinner uh, drinks brushing our teeth and then having some water in our water bottle to start in the morning. Wow. Okay. Our experience was a little bit different, I think, than some hikers in that we were just so dogged about the hike. And we had to be because we were so much slower. Our miles per hour were slower, but Mm -hmm. we would often make the same number of miles in a day. It just took us longer. Right. You hiked a little bit later. You didn't stop for an hour and take a nap, that kind of thing. Right. Right. Yeah. And it, it sounded like you, you guys didn't kind of have any set time that you would be done by. It, you were more driven by trying to get the miles done than six o'clock. I'm going to shut it down. And this is, you know, this is where we're going to camp. Right. And it was also determined by Emerson's tenacity and drive, or sometimes it was just me. Sometimes I would be like, I can't, I can't go another step, but it was pretty much, it was pretty much like that. It was pretty much like when one of us was just couldn't do anymore, we would just stop or it got dark. I wasn't a fan of hiking in the dark and I got really nervous when it would start to get to be dusk because I didn't want to have any accidents or have Emerson get lost um, at dark. So I was really cautious about it getting dark and I did not want to hike in the dark. So I tried to be at camp or approaching camp by the time it started to get dusk. It makes perfect sense to yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. It was exciting. Yeah. It's such a different thing because like now I look at him at, a, at almost 12 and he's so much more capable. Mm-hmm. And he was capable back then, but the difference between nine and nine and 12 is huge. Absolutely. Maturity level and strength and size and all of it. Yeah. Did you guys have any animal encounters? No, we scared all the animals off (laughs) and talked a lot. I talked to him a lot. We were pretty noisy going through the brush. Not a lot of animals. We saw some rattlesnakes and we heard elk a lot up in Washington. Uh, and occasionally we would come around a switchback or something and you could smell that there had been a large animal there recently, but we didn't, we didn't get to see the bears or, um, you know, we didn't, we saw a large, a large deer, a large buck up in Washington. We came up over a, a rise up on a, on a, mountain and there was a large buck kind of nibbling at some things he kind of looked at us I I just let him wander off I was like we're just gonna hang out here unless you have your space (laughs) you do what you need to do you do this is your house thanks for letting us enjoy it (laughs) yeah yeah it sounds like you're a a slight bit wistful about the and not seeing any animals but yeah well animals are cool and yeah. I was glad to not meet a grizzly bear. Yes. But sometimes, you know, it would have been cool. I heard people about coming around the corner and like coming face to face with some large elk or a deer or something mm-hmm. or a bear. 
I don't want to see any. I don't want to see any cats. I don't, I don't want to see any cats. Cats are usually bad news. Yeah, absolutely. I know it. people. The people are describing to me the black bears on the PCT as being large squirrels. I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. How was hitchhiking for you guys? Oh, interesting question. Yeah, that was one thing that made me really nervous. So it worked out okay. I I wasn't super comfort. I never did get super comfortable with it. But it seemed like in the places where we needed to hitch, the people who stopped to pick us up uh, were looking out looking for hikers. So they like were they knew we were going to be, yeah, like trail angels or just, yeah, I guess trail angels, people who were day hikers. That was probably the most comfortable for me is to just go up and ask, ask for a ride from somebody at a trailhead or something. Mm-hmm. Lots of places that would come out, there would be like a trailhead there on Mount Baden-Powell. There's, you need to go into Wrightwood and there's a trailhead right there. So if there's somebody that's headed back down the hill, it's not too hard to just say, Hey, do you have room for some stinky hikers? Right. <laughs> and right. Emerson's cute. So, um, <laughs> he was your were, ace in the hole. Yeah. And people were willing to pick up Emerson and I, I guess. Yeah. I, I think that because he was a kid, and it was obvious that we were hikers. Maybe they were more willing to. I don't know. But nobody seemed to. I didn't hear any stories of people having particularly hard times getting rides from mm-hmm. places where they where they normally would need rides. If you needed to get off trail in a place where it's not as common. Right. But yeah, most of the places I had to hitch, we just put up a little sign, said we were PCT hikers. I think I have a picture of Emerson uh, with his first sign for hitching. So did did you guys have a sign that you kept with you the entire time or did you sort of ad lib signs as you went along? I kept the, I kept paper maps, the National Geographic paper maps. I think Yogi or Half Mile provides a print service or you can print them yourself. They're available. And so I had those maps in packets that I carried with me. Okay. And that is one thing that I am going to do differently is carry, carrying maps of the surrounding area because on the PCT, I had this like line I was going on, but if anything went wrong within one or two miles of the trail, I didn't know where my exits were on much right. of the trail. So, yeah. And I guess this is a good I time to that mention that you are pre- planning, prepping right now to get on the AT for 2019. That's right. That's right. I leave March 22nd or 23rd for the Appalachian Trail. Yeah, it's very uh, exciting. Yeah, it's fantastic. And that is actually part of my question is how is the planning that you did and the gear that you used on the PCT different or same as what you are doing right now for the AT? Cool. Right. So... This is where I looked up some things about gear. I started out with an Osprey aerial pack, a 70 liter pack, because I, I use that larger volume to pack with a kid because they have right. a lot of big bulky things as well as you need more space for food. And then by at Tahoe, I swapped that pack for a ULA uh, circuit. Okay. And 
I really love it. It's the difference between like a Toyota and a Cadillac. The Osprey is just <laughs> so comfortable. You can carry so much weight. It's just so all day comfort. The ULA is more like a Toyota. It'll get you where you need to go. It's super comfortable, but you're going to have a little road noise. Don't worry about it. I like the analogy. <laughs> so that's kind of kind of how I feel about those packs. I still love my Osprey. Uh, I'm taking my my ULA circuit on the AT. Okay. So what what caused you to switch at that point? Was it about weight? Was it about you were just so so? Here's something. <laughs> So I had uh, lost, my body composition had changed pretty dramatically and my waist belt no longer fit at all. I had gone from like a large waist belt in mm-hmm. the Osprey and I pro- I may have needed a medium or something. Anyways, I decided to go with a smaller, lighter pack just because I didn't want to deal with my older pack getting the right waistband. So you were going to have to make a change so, anyway and it was just, why not just right. do it all? Right. I mean, I had foam duct tape to the waistband because it was so much bigger that it did not fit on my hips anymore. (laughs) So that's how much my body had changed. You MacGyvered it. Yeah, it wasn't unusual. Like it was pretty common because you come out of the Sierras and your body has used so many calories and you're so strong. Uh, You've got so much muscle compared to fat. Um, that people's bodies were just a lot smaller than when, maybe when they started. So Not that surprising. was a big change at Tahoe, but I am going to take that. My For the PCT, I took the, for a tenth, I took the REI Half Dome 2 Plus, which comes out to about four pounds, 14 ounces and packed. And I'm sw- swapping that for a Z-Pax Duplex, which okay. I think is 18 ounces. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> so so that was a big change both in weight and in volume. So I'm excited to have that that space back in my pack and also mm-hmm. it's a ton lighter. Now and I guess something to note at this moment is that the plan is that you get on the trail in March but that Emerson will join you when he's out of school. That's right. This this year we decided that it was more important for him to finish his school year and have continuity. Um, he's sixth grade now. Mm-hmm. And so his actual formal schooling is more, it's more important that okay. he follow through on those projects. And at third and fourth grade, there's a lot you can still do. Just it's not as important for some kids to be there every single day, but at sixth grade, he's starting to work on some really involved projects. So, mm-hmm. so he'll join me for the summer break. And then if I don't finish before he needs to go back to school, then the plan currently is that he will just go back to Portland and I'll finish up. So the duplex that you've got is big enough to to cover both of you or to provide for both of you. Right. It's slightly smaller than our half dome two plus, which is very luxurious, is very durable tent. The Z Pack duplex is slightly smaller, but it still has a lot of space. And it's still being very lightweight. We will mm-hmm. lose the, the, one of the things you will want to consider is whether you want a freestanding tent or a tent that you put up with stakes. So that'll be a big change because I'll be putting up a tent with stakes and my half dome was freestanding. So I could pretty much put it anywhere. And uh, so location will be a of where I pitch a tent will be a little more important. Right. You'll have to, you'll have to plan and think about it a little bit more. 
Right. Did you guys do much, much cowboy camping on the PCT? I didn't. Okay. <laughs> I didn't because I don't like the bugs. <laughs> yes, I've heard that. Yeah. Some people have a fine time with it, but I just don't like the bugs. So sometimes I wouldn't have the fly on my tent. In fact, a lot during the summer, I wouldn't have the, the fly on the tent. But I put it up anyways, just for the mosquito netting. Mm-hmm. How bad were the mosquitoes for you guys? Because you guys went through the Sierras pretty early. How yeah. bad were the mosquitoes at that point? So the thing that I learned is that the mosquitoes are the most voracious right after the snow melts. So the snow melts and then there's a bloom of mosquitoes. Okay. So like people would report terrible mosquitoes in different areas of the trail, even in the year that we hiked. And where it was the worst for us was at uh, mile 1000. And it was awful. Like hundreds and hundreds people were wearing full rain suits trying to like just not go mad from the mosquitoes i had 100 percent deet with me and my son begged me to put it on him because i resisted putting bug spray on us just because i didn't want chemicals on us but we had head nets highly recommend a head net there's nothing like getting swarmed on your face and um yeah and then they don't they don't tend to be as bad at higher elevations. So if you're in a low elevation, it can be really motivating to know that you have to go over a path and know that once you get up at a certain elevation, the mosquitoes are going to start to be less and less. Did you, like where you were having issues with, with mosquitoes, did you abbreviate your, your camp plans? Like it was stay in the tent until absolute last minute and then jump out and roll out or... Yep. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was yeah, we'd I'd pack everything inside the tent and then I'd start Emerson hiking and then I'd take the tent down as quick as I could and he'd already be moving because you could mm-hmm. move and that would be less mosquitoes. But that's just like a couple of days. There were a few days when it was just miserable, but for the most part a head net in some bug spray was plenty. There were a few days that were just miserable, mm-hmm. but we but for the most back. part, it wasn't bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's yeah, what I've heard. The Outrun the mosquitoes. Bad. I'm not visualizing this very well. <laughs> there, there, that was a thing that was happening. It doesn't seem possible when you start your through hike, but mm-hmm. there will be moments where you are motivated to run with your 25 or 35 pound pack and you are surprised at how rapidly you move. Um, it might be that you know that the cafe is closing at 5 and you're going to be able to maybe get there at 4.30 if mm-hmm. you if you put, break into a jog or it might be mosquitoes. But um, I was surprised how fast through hikers could move when they wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> With the proper motivation. With the proper motivation, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Okay, circling back to sleeping. So you had the tent. What were your sleeping bags? So Emerson had a Western mountaineering bag. I'm going to have to look up the the model. It's a woman's because that's what was available. We actually swapped up his bag in Idlewild. The one I had for him wasn't warm enough. So I got him the warmest one I could find. Because there is nothing like having your child cry because he's cold. So I wasn't oh, interested absolutely. in having that happen anymore. So we got him a really warm bag, and I'm jealous of that one. Mine's an old Mountain Hardware bag. 
but we got the, the, the salient point is that I got the warmest ones I could find. Cause you can always kick off covers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then in the summer I'd use it like when it was warmer, I would use it more like a quilt. So I wouldn't zip it up. I would just lay it over the top of me like a blanket. Okay. And Oh, an interesting note about sleeping bags in case you find a friend, a lot of the zippers are the same. And so if you find somebody's bag who has the same zipper as you, you can zip them together when it's super cold. So Emerson <laughs> and I did that. <laughs> Body heat plus down plus. Yeah. Yeah. We, we didn't figure this out. Somebody told us along the way, they were telling us about how they zipped their slipping bags together. And we're like, how do you do that? Do you have special bags? And they're like, no, our, our zippers are just compatible. So that night we tried it out. And, um, and it worked. So, so somebody somewhere in the universe figured out that this would be an Im- important thing to have and just basically <laughs> made it so. Yeah. Yeah. I think they might just have all the same zippers. I don't know. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. Did you guys have yeah. pads, uh, inflatable yeah. or egg crate or anything like that? Yeah, I had the, for me, I had the, the Thermarest Meal Air. Okay. And then... Emerson had the foldable Thermarest egg crate one. I don't remember what it's called. That's fine. I, I know exactly. I can picture the yellow. Yeah. The yellow and gray. that yellow one. Are you going to do the same thing this time? I still have my, my new air. And then I'm not sure. Emerson will tell me what his preference is. I think he wants to go with an inflatable, like recently when we've been backpacking, he's just had a regular green Thermarest foam mat that he likes. But recently he's been inclined toward an Exped inflatable that I have. Okay. So he may carry that one. So it's we'll, still TBD we'll see what him. he wants to do. Yep. Yeah. And he's, he knows enough about what he wants to do and what he, he understands he has to carry much of his gear. So Mm-hmm. It really will depend on what, and he knows enough about what he wants to do that as long as he's got the basics, a rain jacket, et cetera, he can decide what he wants to carry. And yeah, he's an experienced he through hiker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, do you guys do any sort of, did you do any sort of pillow or anything like that or just fold up clothes or? Yeah, I just take my, we had a, a stuff sack for our clothes. One for him and one for me. And then whatever clothes we weren't wearing would go in the stuff sack. And okay. sometimes food would go in the stuff, stuff sack, depending depending on where we were sleeping. Just to like cradle your neck. It just, it's more, it's more comfortable that way, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, we just put uh, clothes, whatever clothes we weren't wearing in, in the stuff and- sack. And then, yeah. And then I just made it kind of, so it would like cradle my neck. So it was on the sides and then a little bit less in the middle with whatever, whatever was available. <laughs> and I take it that's going to be your plan for the AT as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't. Oh wait. Emerson actually did pick up a pillow somewhere and we carried it for a while. And we, we actually um, would, sh- we would actually uh, take turns using it for a while. So we did that. And we picked that up somewhere in Oregon. I think we picked up a pillow and we carried it for a while. And then what, did you just let it go or did it start to it, it came, get a hole? It came home with us. No, oh, it, okay. came, it came home with us. It was a foam, foam pillow. Oh. Like a little like roll up foam pillow. And 
Emerson wanted to carry it. And I said, you know, like, you know, the rules, if you want to carry it, that's great. But then I was like, are you sure you don't want to let me have a turn? (laughs) So sometimes I carried it then. (laughs) Got it. Ownership has its privileges. Yeah. Well, it's it's his pillow, but you know, sometimes he let me use it. He's a Mm -hmm. very kind, kind person. Thank God. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I I really 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 want to get on to food because okay let's talk about it yeah because you are you are like the food goddess like you had it all figured out and uh, so so I like walk me eat. through it <laughs> I like I like to eat a lot um, and I'm really excited because I'm doing some things differently this time and I'm excited about that too so uh, what did do we tell. do on the on the PCT. For food, I had coffee with hot chocolate or nido, which is a full-fat dehydrated milk, every single day. Breakfast varied. We had granola. Sometimes we had oatmeal. Sometimes we had, like, Mountain House uh, egg scramble, which I'm kind of sick of, so I don't think I could eat that again. But it was good while it lasted. Right. And then uh, lunch, I planned for four 150 to 200 calorie snacks per person. So it could be like, and I didn't get too technical about it. It could be like granola, a trail mix for 250 calories and tuna and a tortilla for 200 and some calories. Mm -hmm. But I tried to make four servings that were 150 to 200 calories. And then dinner was a hot meal, uh, usually like a rice or pasta side and I added in freeze dried chicken or beef many times. And let's see, we had uh tuna. We took tuna packets, lots of tortillas. Tortillas last really well. And then sharp cheddar cheese. Uh, I would get the eight ounce packets. And then for Emerson and I, I would take two of those. So I'd carry out one to two pounds of cheese, but they would stay in that packet until we were ready to eat it and it might get a little greasy and like the texture might be a little weird, but it didn't spoil in the time before, because we were eating food so fast. Right. So I would say like five days is not, it's not about, unheard of. Yeah. That yeah, it would last like, and, and be fine. That was my tolerance level. Like I was fine with eating it after five days, it would get a little oily if it was hot or whatever, but I didn't mind opening it and having mm-hmm. it or having it in my pack. So, and then bagels were really good to pack out because they're just delicious and bread and the ones you buy in the grocery store have enough preservatives in them that they'll, <laughs> they'll hold up in your pack. And right. so th- those could be really, really tasty. Did you do any, uh, like a lot of people talk about the, ch- the sharp cheddar with like summer sausage and things like that as well. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did a lot of that. And like tortillas can be multi-purpose. We used, I would wrap summer sausage chunks and cheese chunks in a tortilla. And then for dessert, we'd have a tortilla with Nutella spread on it. Okay. Yeah. So that kind of different, utilizing things for different, you know, have your peanut butter for like your snack and then make a pad thai with your ramen. It sounds like you're just going down to the local Thai place. Yeah. So you get really creative and keeping interest in food when you have to eat, I say have to, but you're consuming like four to 6,000 calories a day. 
it's a lot of food and it's, it, it is hard to keep interested in what you're eating. So getting creative was something that was important to me. Some people just, it's not as important. Some people can just eat the same thing every single day and it, it doesn't bother them. And you were doing resupply boxes too, right? Right. I did resupply boxes and I planned each box. I just made it super simple for myself. I just, I think I made 12 boxes and I made them all five days just to make it simple for myself. And I kind of put similar, similar quantities of different items in each box. So they were all kind of the same. There's a list. There's, there's lists of the most difficult uh, places to access a grocery store. Mm-hmm. And it's not imperative to prepare boxes in advance because you kind of can know where those things are coming up. You could stop in Portland and prepare boxes for all of Washington. So at right. Cascade Locks, get off and go over to Portland, prepare your boxes. And then by that time, you would know what you needed to eat. And it would take you like a day to get from the trail, go grocery shopping, get to a post office and hitch back out or take the bus back. And there is a bus from cascade locks out to portland so like some of the least accessible places are in washington and you kind of can do that on the go the boxes that i'd prepare in advance is the kennedy meadows box if you're going northbound okay yeah for your winter your winter gear figuring out how you're going to get your bear canister if you're going to rinse it or uh, if you want it sent there i sent my bear canister packed to kennedy meadows along with our ice axes and our crampons. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Did you, did you do much shopping for supplies along the trail? I guess that was where I was confused. Yep. We ate a lot more than what I put in my boxes. So the boxes were like a start, but we also like, would see what was available in hiker boxes. And then we would also go to the grocery store. Okay. Particularly as I kind of learned what I wanted fresh, for example, having an onion with me might be important at some point as fresh fruits and vegetables get to be more important. Your body starts to crave them a little. Right. That was my experience. Now I, and the variety. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. When we had spoken previously, you had talked about uh, freeze drying a lot of stuff, freeze drying strawberries, freeze drying things like that. Yep. Were those kind of your snack? So I bought freeze dried different uh, number 10 cans of freeze dried ingredients. And then this year I have a dehydrator and I'm dehydrating a lot of meals or like preparing meals in advance. And, okay. um, I'm actually working as a tester for Backcountry Foodie this year. So I'm preparing some of her meals and testing them out. And then so far, everything's been really delicious. And then I'm dehydrating those and vacuum packing them. And so I'm preparing some boxes that way. But at the same time, I know that I can just start walking and start and send boxes ahead of time when I'm on the trail. So right. I'm not too worried about it because I know I can do it. I can get to a town, plan out where those difficult to resupply areas are and send those boxes ahead at that time. 
Right. And the AT is much more accessible than the PCT is even. Right. It, it is much more accessible. I think that the suggestion was, the, what I'm reading right now is the suggestion is around six resupply boxes versus grocery stores is what's recommended. And oh, okay. at the, on the PCT, I think that the difficult places ended up being like 13, 12 or 13 different locations are more challenging and a resupply box might be easier than trying to go to a grocery store. So to, to, I guess, to confirm or make sure that I understand what you did correctly on the PCT, you had 12 or 13 resupply boxes for the more difficult places that you, that you sent ahead at different places. Right. But otherwise you basically shopped and, and you augmented those boxes additionally, but you basically shopped at the stores along the way. Right. Okay. Right. So I'd go into the store and I'd get my pesticides and I'd get my tuna and, you know, maybe a packet of sausages and a couple of eight ounce packets of cheese and, and put together my meals. And I kind of got down what I wanted to do for as far as how many days I thought we would be out. Mm-hmm. And so we would just go in and do it like that. We'd sit at a picnic table and take everything out of the package table packets and then put it in into the food bag and stuff. So, so it was, okay. a, it was a little bit more than just shopping. We would take everything out and then dump it into like Ziploc bags. So sometimes I would have to pick up a packet of Ziploc bags so that we could mm-hmm. uh, repacket things. Right. Make it more compact, make it e- more easy to carry. Right. What, what kind of stuff were you snacking on? So we've talked about kind of your three main meals, but what were you snacking on throughout the day? Lots of granola bars, a lot of wheat, a lot of cheese, a lot of handfuls of nut, just straight up nuts, pecans and almonds. I went to Costco and got like huge bag of pepperoni sticks. And those are really useful. They're pretty spicy, but also pretty, pretty tasty and a huge hit of protein. Which is nice. People, yeah. Well, we didn't have any dietary issues. I guess people who do more resupply boxes and do a lot more food prep uh, have dietary concerns. And we, we didn't have any dietary concerns. So we could pretty much eat anything that was available. So we were eating a lot of protein, a lot of nuts, uh, peanut okay. butter with a spoon. We would take by the end of the trail, we would take the jar of peanut butter and like berries we would pick berries along the way we'd open up the can of peanut butter and pick the berries into the peanut butter and then like (laughs) stir the berries with the peanut butter and eat it so like peanut butter with trail butter trail trail. butter yeah exactly your your own version of pbj (laughs) yes yeah so peanut butter with mixed in scoops of nutella okay did you do any of the I think it's called super butter where you p- actually put a stick of butter in the peanut butter and mix it in. I don't know if we ever did that. I do know about it. I did. One of the things I did do that wasn't that, but I did buy like a big packet of bacon when we were somewhere and I cooked up the whole bacon and then took the drippings and put it into a peanut butter jar and then added that to our food for a couple of hundred miles. <laughs> nice. I think I had like a pound of bacon drippings that I carried for a while. Mm-hmm. That was super delicious. So the, the the pound was worth it? The extra weight was worth it? 
Well, I mean, as it, at as much weight as I was carrying, a pound was whatever. It didn't. I carried, yeah, I carried over. My pack was over fifty pounds most of the time, and wow. that was even going into town. So, like, the amount of weight I was carrying was substantially more, which it didn't really make a difference because we were going slower anyway. So it wasn't mm-hmm. like we were going to go faster because Emerson's legs. He's fast for a kid, but he's only got so much. He's a kid, so his legs are shorter. Yes, I was slower overall. Yes, I'll be faster on the Appalachian Trail. But for what I was doing, the extra weight didn't didn't make all that much difference. Right. You were talking earlier about uh, being in the Sierras and having 10 days worth of food. Yeah. I guess my, my, my understanding of the trail is about every three to five days you come off the trail. Were you guys trying to get an extra long section done or? So that, that haul was from Kennedy Meadows all the way to Kearsarge Pass. And we went in on the 20, we were, we went over Forester Pass on the 26th of May, which is super early. So we were traveling in on snow, which meant about 10 miles a day. It just took us a really long time to do that stretch. Got it. Okay. And because it was so early in the season, we actually, I think we planned for like nine days and we ended up at 10 days. So, it, and my hiking partner actually ran out of food and I spotted her food and fuel because she just simply ran out and was committed to staying with us. And we were just slower, but mm-hmm. it was a, it was a lot of food and we were slow. We were a lot slower right. than your average hiker. Yeah. How was it? Because you guys, you guys got on the trail very early. Not the first, mm-hmm. obviously, but but very early, and there would have been a mm-hmm. lot of snow. How was that to get through and to keep on the trail and and so forth? Yeah, it was pretty easy to get lost, but it was also there was also there were hikers right in front of us. When I went into the Sierra, I had. Uh, hikers in front of me. So I knew from Kennedy Meadows chatter, I knew who was in front of me and I knew who planned to leave after me. So I was pretty, and I made my intentions really clear to everyone. This is what I'm doing. If I don't show up, that look for this me. Is my plan. Look for yeah. my, this is my plan. I wasn't asking hikers to be responsible. I just wanted people to know where I was at. Right. And so it was pretty easy. Yeah, it was pretty easy to lose the trail in the snow. People would get confused and walk around. I had paper maps and I had my phone GPS, which does does work as long as it's not cloudy and your battery doesn't die. Um, Batteries are really prone to cold, so it can be uh, hard to keep keep the battery going. And I was able to relocate the trail on several occasions with my phone. And my paper maps together, I was able to kind of like be more confident because I wasn't always real confident in my phone, but I was confident in like looking at the paper maps and seeing where, where I should be um, in relation, where my last known position was. So you had some map navigation skills going into the hike, um, which not everybody necessarily will have. Limited. But okay. yeah, I could, I can look at a map and read it and and understand how what's on the map <laughs> relates to what you see out in the world. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I still have confidence in my ability to get lost. I think that that's <laughs> okay. a healthy fear, but I I didn't get lost, which is great. <laughs> right. 
So did you have like any sort of Garmin inReach device or anything like that? No, I didn't. And that is a big change. I will have a spot with me on the Appalachian Trail. And I, it is my opinion, after hiking the entire PCT without a beacon, that it's the prudent thing to do to have a beacon. It, it's just the prudent thing to do. I had a hiker friend fall off a rock path this summer. And oh. he's really lucky that they had a beacon. Cause he just fell off, he fell off the mountain and he wasn't in a place that could be seen. So they were able to get out. He and his hiking partner uh, were able to summon a helicopter and he's doing fine now, but it was super, super scary. And it convinced me that beacons are, are a really important thing because it happened so fast to an experienced hiker. Mm-hmm. He's, he's like, it was like, he was like, it was so sudden. And he's like, everything was fine. And then everything was not fine. Total accident. And yeah, now, he was really lucky to have his beacon. Did he use his beacon or was it his tra- his uh, partner who used the beacon? No, it was his partner who used the beacon. Uh, she, it was a, It's a satellite, two-way satellite. So she was a, a, actually able to let search and rescue know kind of uh, my friend's condition. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he was, he was in shock. He wasn't able to move. And um, yeah, so it was a really scary situation. Yeah. Yeah. So they helicoptered them off of the mountain and it all ended relatively happily. He thinks he'll be able to backpack again. He uh, cracked his, cracked his spine and dislocated his hip and had a gnarly gash on his head. Wow. Okay. Thank, thank God for the beacon. Yeah. So, so I'll be carrying a spot and that'll be, that'll <laughs> be, it'll not only, yeah, it'll be fun. It'll be fun for my, um, my family to be able to track where I'm at. That'll be fun for them. Yeah. And it'll also create uh, some additional security. Are you planning on say sending a location text at the end of each night or kind of checking in each night or, or is it just more for an overall safety perspective? So I'll, I will do an every night check-in and I think it's important for a, a trail support person to recognize that sometimes things happen or clouds happen or people like forget and go to sleep, but I'll send the I'm okay message every night. Okay. That brings my husband a lot of happiness to see where I'm, I'm at. Sure. And it's really, it's really good at pinpointing within like 10 or 20 feet of where I'm actually camped. So that's cool. But I may do a more tracking because it does have the ability to track more frequently, mm-hmm. which is also kind of fun uh, for my own interest. Right. I, I haven't decided that takes more battery and uh, I don't know if I want to try to maintain that. And probably a, a bigger plan, right? Or does the basic plan on it do that? Yeah. I don't, I don't remember what, I don't remember what the different plans where it might take a different plan, but I think it's pretty easy to upgrade if you change your mind. But I just have a very basic spot, which doesn't have any messaging. It's just, it has like options like I'm okay. I'm not okay. Right. I need serious like help. So we have like, there's a I'm okay message, a custom message and a like send search and rescue message. And so we've kind of predetermined what those different signals will mean for us. Perfect. Okay. My, my, my like 
I'm not okay message is give me 72 hours. Give me 72 (laughs) hours to figure it out. If I say I'm not okay, like you may want to like walk in. Right. Okay. Which actually brings up an interesting question about the mental side of it. Both. Okay. The, you know, the mental not wanting to go on, but continuing to go on, but also the mental, I'm in a jam and I need to get myself out. And how do I keep a clear head and, and all of that? So the first part of your question was like, how do I go on on a bad day? Yeah. What are your um, rules? Yeah. What, do you, what do you do? Never quit on a bad day. You can make a plan, but you never quit on a bad day. Okay. And um, quitting is not as the same as resting. So um, I, I just wouldn't stop on a bad day, though, because I had some bad days where I was, I'm just like not into this anymore. I don't know why I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. which reminds me uh, that before I started hiking, I read a couple of books on endurance sports. And one of the things that really stood out to me was, I think it's Christopher McDougall uh, okay. talks yeah. about kind of setting your intention and then resolving to not question your original intention in the middle of your race. So he's talking about like endurance racing and he Mm -hmm. gets really important to like set your intention at the beginning and then not letting the little concerns, et cetera, like, cause when you're tired and when things are stressful, it can be easy to question yourself. And it's important to not question why you're doing the thing at that point. You need to resolve those questions before you start your endurance race or activity because in the midst of stress and exhaustion is not the time to be questioning the why. Right. You're, you're in a weakened state at that point. Right. So I think the second part of your question was how do you resolve things when you are tired and exhausted and things aren't going right? Definitely when things aren't going right. Like when you were just saying with the beacon, you know, give me 72 hours or, or whatever you know, you need to figure something out. Like, how do you, what's your approach to keeping a clear head and and thinking through the process and coming up with solutions and that kind of thing? So one of the things that I noticed is that when things would start to go wrong, I would keep pushing. And and I learned over time that that was often the most detrimental answer. Sometimes the best answer was to get to a safe place and and rest. That was often the, the best answer. So for example, you realize that a huge storm that you didn't anticipate is rolling in and it's going to dump snow on you. And people are plowing past you trying to go up the mountain and it's windy and you're just, oh my gosh, I'm going to get stuck for like a week behind this path and I don't have a week's worth of food and it's snowing and the temptation is to keep on pushing. But then that's the like exact moment, do an internal check and be like, okay, so like, is this a good choice for me or no matter what other people are doing, what is the good choice for mm-hmm. me? And often it was take it to get to a safe place and rest, which is why I carried a lot of food is because I wanted to have that option to get to a safe place and, and rest. And be able to think about the problem again, once you've had some sleep and some food and, and that kind of thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's it. That's, that's another good point. Sometimes when things seem really weird and terrible or like unsolvable eating is sometimes the answer 
and eating and resting are often Mm -hmm. the way to get to a clear answer. So do you have an example of a time that 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 happened for you and the solution or whatever, again, that, that you came up with? Well, when I was talking to you, I was thinking about when we hit Forester Pass, we had camped the night before at Tyndall Creek. And then we had planned to approach the pass and then go over. And as we, it took us longer than we expected, which wasn't unusual. We were hiking on snow and it was just taking longer than we expected. And as we approached, a storm started to come over and the wind started picking up. And I was unsure of the route that we should take because the summer route was covered by snow. And there had been some snow, so some of the steps were covered. And then my son was getting tired. And so we made the, the woman I was hiking with and I made the call to set up our camp and not try to go over. And all afternoon, the snow kept getting more and more coming down faster and faster. Mm-hmm. And more and more hikers were attempting to go over. And we ended wow. up camping all night. And I don't know if we would have, I don't think it would have been a good decision to go over that afternoon. It was a really cold night camping on snow. And then the next morning, though, it was a much better situation. There were about five other hikers going over at the same time we were. It was a much better situation. Did the storm pass and... Yeah, and it was the next day was pretty. That's the thing in the mountains. Uh, you want to be not on the mountain around four o'clock. You want to be like, you want to be like coming down the hill in the afternoon because the weather tends to not be great. I don't know why, but it seemed the weather would get not great in the afternoon around four o'clock. So you're saying at around four o'clock. So in the afternoon, you want to be coming down versus going up. Right. That was that okay. was my experience. How was it going through the snow post-holing and things like that? Was there a better time to, tr- if you were going to have to tackle a big snow field? Oh, yeah, definitely in the morning. You wanted it to be as cold as possible. So that you could walk on top of? Right. That really comes into play at Glen Pass. Uh, it's just a huge snow field. It's really deep snow and it gets sun in the morning. And by about 10 o'clock, it's just like up to your waist. It was... Ugh. It was, yeah, unless you go through later in the season and people walked pretty much on dry ground the whole time, but we had a lot of snow and like I kept post in up to my waist and like we were kind of going down the mountain, but you didn't want to go down the mountain too fast because glissading for those long distances can end up with you in a hole or I, I just didn't want to glissade that far down. It was just right. really far. So you could end up in exactly not where you wanted to be. Yep. So we spent the morning picking our way down the mountain and um, yeah, we finally got down, but it took us so long. Like Glen Pass just took forever. And I don't know how that could have been avoided. Just We came over Kearsarge Pass and then camped. And then we made our ascent as I think we left at like six in the morning. I think we got to the top at around 10 and it was still just a mess going down the hill. I don't know how we could have done that differently. Yeah, I don't, we might have been able to get closer to the path. Okay. But I don't know for our speed, I don't know how we could have done it very much differently. Are you going to, are you going to use like gut hook apps this time or anything like that? Yes. Yeah. I'm going to, 
I'm going to use gut hooks. Okay. I think they call it Atlas now. Yeah. Yeah. The the website is Atlas, but everybody just right. knows it as gut hooks at this point. As gut hooks. Yep. So I, w- I will use gut hooks. I think that's the main ones. There were some other apps that some people are using on the AT, but I haven't found one that I'm super excited about. So so go with the the tried and true. Yeah. Feet. Yes. What did you guys use on the PCT and are you going to use it again on the AT? Yes, we're uh we're darn tough all the way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You've probably heard that before. Oh yeah, and the return policy. Yeah, yeah, but I haven't ever tried out their t- return return policy. I still have a couple pairs that are worn out that I should send in. I haven't done it yet, but yeah, they have the darn tests feel like they're felting more than spreading. You know how some socks that yeah. feels like the fibers are spreading. For some reason, the darn tough socks didn't seem like they did that as as much. So I was a really big fan. I carried a lot of socks. I carried. We each had three pairs plus a sleep sock. So that's a lot of socks. That is. I just really found it to be such a huge morale boost to clean my feet and put on a fresh pair of socks that I reserved the ability to be able to do that occasionally. So that's why I carried a lot of socks. That was a little bit of your luxury item. Right. And then uh, one of the things I found with keeping my feet clean was that I could take a small section of washcloth and a quart bag and then put a small amount of water into the quart bag and kind of squash it around. Mm-hmm. And then I could use that to wipe the major dirt and salt off my feet. Oh, and the quart bag okay. was to like conserve water because splashing water over a dry towel can waste a lot of water. But if you put it into the quart bag, then it's easier to distribute the water, also easier to clean the clean the rag by washing it around. Right. Did you then, if you had the water in the bag and you put the washcloth in, you get it wet and so forth, you clean. And then I'm assuming you probably tried to clean the washcloth a little bit. Did you put the washcloth back in the bag to kind of preserve the water? It just depended on the situation. Okay. Like, so the, the, the cloth was not going to end up clean ever. Right. It was just going to be, but the point was more to like wipe, wipe off the major crud it wasn't trying to get things perfectly clean like you would in a bathtub. It was just to kind of, the salts will actually rub sores into your feet. Mm-hmm. And so getting the salt and the major crusty dirt was kind of my, my thought. And then I would take, and even if my feet weren't clean, I would take some kind of greasy lotion and I would smear it onto my feet, kind of massaging in. And then any places that felt raw, I would put a Neosporin on and then I would carefully roll over my sleep socks, which would get kind of greasy and gross, but they were kind of moisturizing and keeping my feet kind of soft. And so you weren't getting calluses and that kind of stuff. I did get calluses, but the calluses weren't the issue. The having your cracking was the problem. Ah, got it. Okay. And even with taking care of my feet, I was hiking down from, Mount Hood and my my heel popped and it just like the skin just split. Yeah. And that's what you don't want to have happen. You do not want your skin to be splitting on your feet. No, that doesn't so. sound like a good thing. No. So what did you do? 
Oh, I kept hiking and then I packed it with Neosporin <laughs> and put glucose tape over the top of it. Okay. And then I kept on hiking. Of course you did. Yeah. <laughs> what else are you going to do? <laughs> so that was one of the things is that learning the difference between pain, like that's a painful thing, but it's, mm-hmm. it's not something that could, it's not an, it's, it's pain, but it was something that I could fix, but there's injuries that you actually have to stop and rest, but there's going to be just suffering or discomfort that's just inevitable and getting comfortable with that idea of Mm -hmm. being uncomfortable or feeling pain. I felt was pretty important. So it becomes more like white noise. Right. It becomes not all that interesting at some point to talk about how much pain you're in because everybody else that you're around is in pain also. So, yeah. <laughs> so you talk about other things. Right. They, they, their level of uh, commiseration or their level of, oh, I'm so sorry that you're in pain is pretty minimal at that point. Right. And it's more like a, it's more like a triage and solutioning. Like if you say, hey, my, I've got this massive blister. It's okay. Let's triage what kind of first aid supplies we have and see how we can help. Right. Okay. So what did you, I'm assuming you guys did get some blisters. What did you do for them? Keep it. Well, I don't know what the correct answer is, but I can tell you what we did. Uh, what did you do? Pop them. I'd pop them. Okay. They're super painful okay. when you pop them. I'd keep them popped. I'd open them up, pack them with Neosporin and cover them with um, some kind of gauze and then Lugo tape over the top of everything. Lugo tape because it tends to stay on better than anything else. Right. And that's the big thing there when you're, when you're that dirty and, and moving that much. Yeah. And I would just, the glucose tape would come off after a couple of days. So we would just leave it, leave it on and try to keep the area as clean as possible. We would just leave it on until it would start to come off and then take it off. Like I wouldn't okay. try to take it off each day. I'd try to just get it as clean as I could, cover it up, leave it. And then whenever the, whenever the glucose tape came off, we'd deal with it again. But Neosporin was pretty important, uh, just having the ability to clean up any kinds of sores or injuries. Yeah. What what kind of shoes did you use? What? Uh, we went through a lot of shoes. I think we did like five pairs. Of the same shoe or no, switching out different least, things? I started out with, a. I had Kings. I don't remember what the model was. And Emerson had King hiking boots. And he he wore those for 700 miles. And then wow. after that, we got, uh, let's see, we got some Solomons, which I did not like. And then after that, we went to the Brooks Cascadia and mm-hmm. we had 11s and 12s. And those worked really well for us. They tended to blow out across the top of the foot. The, the mesh okay. there would just blow out. So uh, it took about three to five if we could get them to three to 500 miles, that was by 500 miles, they were flopping around. So <laughs> I'm not sure what, like, I like the way we both like the way that the Cascadia is fit. I love the grip. As far as what I'm going to, what I'm going to use uh, on the Appalachian trail. Yeah. I am unsure. I might go, I have been hiking in the ultra lone peaks. Okay. Breeze. And I'm not a super fan. I feel like they're so squishy and marshmallowy. If you have a really even tread, 
I feel like they're really great because you're just like walking along and they're super cushy and you don't have that massive fatigue. But anything that's technical, my balance is not great. And so a more rigid tread is easier for me. So the ultras tend to like the, the tread itself kind of tends to mold to whatever it's on you. Right. Okay. Looks like the Brooke Cascadias are going to be back. Yeah. So I really like, I've, so I've since the PCT, I've hiked in the ultras and La Sportiva Bushidos. And I like those a lot. And then uh, ultra has a new, a new model out. And I'm looking here to see where the, where is my, I made, Oh, here it is. It's called um, King MT the Ultra King MT. And okay. that one is interesting because it has a Vibram sole. And that seems like the tread will last longer. It looks like a pretty good shoe. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard any reviews. I've been looking for some trail reviews of it. But I think they just came out with it this year. And so it's got the Vibram sole. And it's a little bit more, little more grip on it, a little more sturdy tread. So I'm kind of interested to see how that one would be. I'm not too worried about it because the shoes wear out so quickly that if it's not working, you just get a new pair of shoes. It's the most expensive consumable on the trail. Right. But you go through them fairly fast. But that's what REI and Amazon Postal is for. Right. Also, if you order from Amazon, be super careful because they don't deliver to the post office all the time. You have to be really careful about what you select because the general delivery at post offices is for post office mail, like United States post office mail. And Mm -hmm. I think there's an option that you can select on the different companies to deliver to the post office. But if you order from like Amazon, you can have trouble with them not delivering to the post office. I guess when Amazon went to their own kind of delivery service versus just using the post office, things changed. It's so weird because the post office will deliver Amazon packages, but I had trouble with getting packages that I tried to send general delivery to a post office. Hmm. Okay. Good to know. Very good to know. Yep. So we're we're getting up on our time, how quickly it flies. But I wanted to touch base with you on on and get some more great stories from you about your your best and worst time or experiences on trail. So I think my best time there's so many best times. I loved all the mountain passes when we'd get to the top. I loved the mountain passes. I loved hitting Deep Creek. And it was a really pleasant day. People had different experiences on different days. But the day that Emerson and I were there, it was a really positive experience. And we had fun in the hot springs. Nice. Finishing was a huge, huge best, best moment. We had met a woman back at Scissors Crossing. And she ended up spontaneously being at the, the pass, at Hearts Pass. And okay. we, so we yeah. saw her and she's like, okay, so we're going to hike ahead and we'll wait for you at the monument. And it was just like, we had seen her at literally almost the beginning of our hike. And now just like mm-hmm. randomly, she was showed up. And so she had let everyone know that we were on our way. And so 
Emerson and I came through the clear through the woods. It comes into the woods and then it opens into a clearing. And I expected that maybe there would be, there was like five people there and there was cheering and someone handed <laughs> me a bottle of champagne. And nice. like the pictures from those moments are really awful, but um, it was a really magical moment to just be like, okay, so we, I said, we set out to do a thing and we did it and we're here and we're, we accomplished it and just kind of taking that moment to say we're do, doing a thing, an arbitrary thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's an arbitrary thing to set out to do this adventure, but then setting sights on a goal and then finishing it. That's a pretty cool day. Yeah. And it feels like the celebration sort of was kind of a more equivalent to the thing, like how big the thing is. Yep. It was, it was a very cool thing to, to be, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty, pretty good, good celebration. So that was a really awesome day. And I think my hardest day was we came out at Sonora Pass and we had, somebody had gifted us um, a stay in the, the lodge down the mountain at Kennedy, Kennedy, there's two Kennedy Meadows, Kennedy Meadows North, they're not related, but the North one, we had stayed overnight there. And I woke up and I was so tired and my body was so wrecked from the Sierras. I felt mm-hmm. like just so rickety, like everything just hurt. And I just wanted to go home. And I was like, there's the road. I could just leave. <laughs> and that was a really big, like, but I didn't have an apartment to go home to. And Pete was in New Zealand at the time. So even if I called him, it was going to be like another two weeks before he was even going to be back. Mm-hmm. And so I just remember being really sad that day. And it was just a really mentally hard day because I just, I wanted to be done. And I was only halfway done at that point. <laughs> right. Did you have to fall back on your your mental thing yep. of don't quit on a hard day? I did. And I told Pete later, I was, if you had have been home, like you would have had to tell me no. And he, and he <laughs> knew. He would have told me, no, you can't come home unless you're injured. But yeah, I wanted to quit really bad that day. And I was just, Emerson was tired too and was complaining a lot and he wanted to be done and I wanted to be done. And it was just a mentally, just a really hard day. Mm -hmm. And we were headed back up into like the snow again. And it was just, Oh man. (laughs) And um, luckily we had, that day was actually at the end was really good. I had grabbed some new potatoes from a guy who had brought some stuff to the Sonora pass rest, rest area there. And I had carried out like a pound of new potatoes and I sliced them up and fried them over a campfire and some olive oil. And they were really delicious. And we were camping with some really nice people. And that was, so it was a really rough day and it had also really good moments. So I think that's important to remember when things are really, really mentally tough. Right. If you hold out for another half an hour, everything could change. Everything could change. It could be awesome. I've never been disappointed by just hanging on for a little bit longer. Yeah. Any other plans or anything like that that are changing for you with the AT versus the PCT? 
see. See, I am looking at my notes right now. Okay, no worries. Uh, let's see, my 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 notes say one of the things that has changed is I am less concerned. Like I realize that I'm going to learn new things. The okay. Appalachian Trail is a different trail. It's got a different culture. There's different things that you that are the norms or that are, are important to remember or do. And I realize that I'm going to learn some new things. And mm-hmm. I feel much more comfortable with that, with trusting that process. And okay. there's different things that I'm worried about. On the PCT, I was worried about the technical aspects of getting through the Sierra. On the AT, I know the questions that I'm interested in researching, so I haven't wasted time on meticulous planning or worry about things that I know I might be concerned about, but that I'll figure out as I get there. So there's certain things okay. that I'm, I am interested in, like those six drops, uh, resupply drops. I was interested in having like some food from home, and so I'm making sure I know where those places are. I have trying to figure out where I should be at certain dates. So I have that mental preparation. That's important to me, but there's other details, how to hang my food in certain places. I'm not worried about trying to figure out what the culturally correct way to do that. And I know that I can, after doing the Pacific Crest Trail, I know that in with the gear I have, I could be ready in less than two hours, hike out the door and I could go and, I would be fine. I know that wow. it would be okay. Yeah. So, and and even if I didn't have the resources, like all of the maps and my phone, et cetera, mm-hmm. I have a lot more confidence in trusting kind of the journey right. and being resourceful and asking for what I need and figuring out what the next step is and not worrying about mountains that I haven't come to yet. So that's what that's a, big the, one. a lot of, yeah, that's a lot that has changed. A a big two, asking for what you need and not worrying about the mountains that you're not there yet. Yeah. (laughs) They'll be there. Yes, they're (laughs) waiting for you. Yes. (laughs) It's interesting. One of the things that has come out of my conversations with people who have done the AT is because it's so accessible, how, you know, the, the need for hitchhiking, um, and, and that kind of stuff is much more limited because, Uber and Lyft can pick you up a lot of times. Oh, cool. <laughs> which makes things a hell of a lot easier. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, that'll be, that'll be, it'll be interesting to see how that works out. I think that I'm interested in, I think I'll be doing, I prefer to keep hiking. I find that going into town kind of sucks my time. So mm-hmm. five to seven days is good for me. So I won't, I won't be doing the very frequent town visits, I don't think, but that could change. It seems like there's just a lot more accessible towns available. There's a lot more accessible. Yeah. So it makes it logistically easier, but everyone that I've talked to that has done both say that the, that it's more physically strenuous on the AT, just the way that the trail is is more physically demanding, but the logistics are so much easier. So we'll, we'll see how, <laughs> we'll see how it, but I, I believe them. I'm just going to believe that and I'm ready for it. And I think that it, I know how my body responds to the pointless ups and downs. So mm-hmm. 
I'll just wait for my heart to kick into low gear and truck on up the mountain. There you go. Just churn them out. Is there anything you feel like we might have missed that should be said? Enjoy your hike. I'm really excited (laughs) for you, Erin. I'm so excited for you. I just, I really... I really think that you've put you've put a lot of time and effort into making sure that this is um, the kind of hike that you want to hike. And yeah. um, I'm very excited to, and it's really encouraging that you're researching and also uh, making preparations to like document what you're doing for your own edification. And it's going to be very exciting to see how, how the experience is for you after all of your thought and planning. It's a very good thing to have waiting for you. I'm excited. I'm, I'm yeah. really excited about it. And and talking to people keeps the inspiration going. Yeah. I, I know that you at, at some point you could feel a little overwhelmed and or you could be like, oh, well, maybe, maybe not, maybe not. But mm. the continuous conversations and every time I talk to somebody, even as hard as it may be, everybody has basically said, yes, absolutely, 100% do it. It's life-changing. Yep. It'll be one of those things that you never forget. Yes, do it. A long, a long walk is good for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what's not to love about coming away with people that you can trust with your life and memories that just never, they just never go away. And this ability to kind of snap back to a place that was beautiful and peaceful and um, calm and, and like having that in your in your memories. Like that's so important when things get really rough. Sometimes things will be tough and all of a sudden, like I'm not there anymore. I'm in such a beautiful place and I'm experiencing wind and birds and kind of the, Mm -hmm. the rhythm of the walking. It's yeah, that's been, been good. Did you find that the rhythm of the walking kind of slowed everything down for you? Because we're so zoom zoom now. It just streamlined. I think that their rhythm kind of streamlines everything. I found that a lot of things that were tangled up or ideas or thought processes that were tangled up in my head when I started kind of like pulled out over the miles. And uh, I came back being able to see things in a very different light. The world doesn't, you don't, you go away, you leave the, your, your normal world and you go away and then you come back and you have changed, but nothing else around you has. So you have to like take your new self and figure out where you fit in the world that hasn't changed and with your new ideas and your new values. So that was that the process for you. It was hard. It was hard. I realized that a lot of things we do are pointless and don't mm-hmm. enhance happiness. And yeah. um, so I'm much more willing to do what pleases me and realizing that a lot of things are things we do for entertainment. So it's, if it's not enjoyable, then don't do it. But there's so, so many things, you know, like t- tending a yard, for example, like if it doesn't make you happy, then don't do it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> The forests are fine without any kind of gardening. They're doing fine. Yeah, you know, like, uh, so, so a lot of those things, uh, my priorities changed. People are a lot more important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
and being outdoors. Did you also, in terms of the people that were in your life, did you kind of do a reevaluation on that as well and, and be like, you know what, this person is too much drama or this? You know, I have really good people in my life. You're lucky. <laughs> so, so I, I have a lot of the same friends that I've, that I've always had. I didn't, I didn't have a lot of reevaluation. I think that the way that I approach people, it may be different more compassionate with better boundaries. Mm. Right. I mean, yeah, I think that that, that may be a change. Okay. A lot more came, a lot more compassionate, but also like not taking on other people's hike. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's so easy to do too. Right. Right. Taking on other people's stuff is, is an easy thing to do, but Yep. I, you know, like hiking with a kid, I had to focus on making sure that he was safe and I was safe. So I didn't have a lot of, I didn't have a lot of extra to make sure that other people were getting what they needed. Right. Right. It wasn't your responsibility to babysit them. No, you know, like I had no problem handing my kid a Snickers bar when I knew that somebody hadn't had breakfast. Mm -hmm. I'm just, you know, uh, I realized that, you know, like I have to take care of my needs and the needs of my son first. And I'm sorry that you had poor planning. <laughs> yes. Yep. At the same time, if somebody was actually in trouble, I would have helped, but I think I have better boundaries because yeah, making sure that, that I take care of what, what I need to take care of my responsibilities first state playing in my own sandbox. There you go. <laughs> yeah. The, the perfect, the perfect metaphor, the perfect analogy. Let's close this up. We're getting, we're getting close on to two hours now. Hooray. So thank you, Olivia. But if people wanted to reach out to you with additional questions or something, where could they find you? Where Where would you like them to find you? So I'm on Facebook at Olivia Baki. And I'm on Instagram also at Olivia Baki. Okay. And how so, do you spell Baki? B-A-K-K-E. Perfect. And and thank you for this third conversation that we've now had about through hiking and, and the PCT. You're welcome. Speak a little louder. And when we find ourselves wishing that we could make a bigger change. Show notes and links for Olivia's gear can be found on our website at hiking-through.com. Special thanks to Olivia for sharing her stories from the trail and Maya Wynn for the use of the song Try Again. We'd love to hear about your trail adventures as well, so please email me at hikingthroughpodcast at gmail.com or you can also DM me on Instagram at hikingthroughpodcast. We would also love it if you would find us on your favorite podcast provider and leave a review. See you on the trail. Bye.